Jack. You're listening to Ad Yak. Ad Yak is the official podcast of the AAF Greater Lehigh Valley Ad Club. Our mission is to inspire creativity and enhance the professional development of the advertising and marketing communities where we live and work. I'm your host, Bill Childs, and I'll talk with artists, designers, writers, directors, photographers, along with those who work in a creative capacity. Our aim here is to serve as a creative resource to help you stay informed, entertained, and above all, inspired. Welcome, Ad Yakers. Today, my guest is David Hoffeld. But first, I want to thank our sponsors, ASR Media and Lehigh Valley with Love. We appreciate your support and collaboration. David is the CEO and Chief Sales Trainer of Hoffeld Group and is the author of the groundbreaking book, The Science of Selling, and has a brand new book coming out in March, Sell More with Science. David and I yak it up on a bunch of interesting topics that include knowing the difference between persuasion and manipulation, how to get out of a sales slump, how to use social proof in your presentations, and why salespeople need to focus on the buying process, not the selling process. We also talk about why he believes your personal life and your business life are linked. Because of the results David's insights generate, he's lectured at Harvard Business School, has been featured in Fast Company, Fortune, U.S. News and World Report, The Wall Street Journal, Forbes, Harvard Business Review, CBS Radio, Fox News Radio, and more. This guy really knows his stuff. And he was gracious enough to take the time to share his insights and knowledge with me on Adyak. So here is my Adyak with David Hoffeld. All right, David Hoffeld, man. Welcome to Adyak. Hey, it's a pleasure to be here. Glad to have you here. We are going to have fun, man. We're going to talk about some sales, sales process. Um, you have a lot to say on this topic, and I, I am so excited to have you on as a guest. So let's get this, let's get this going. Um, tell me a little bit about uh, just your early career. Like how did, you know, you didn't wake up today and have a best-selling book, a new one about to come out a consulting group, right? You had to start somewhere. So walk me through that a little bit. Yeah. So I got into sales like uh, many people uh, my age, and that was kind of by accident. I uh, graduated with my master's degree, needed a job, what I thought would be for a very short time, maybe even the summer. And so I went back where, uh, Bill, you'll remember this, where we used to go to look for jobs, which was the newspaper. And I went to the back and I found the sales job, went down and they interviewed me, hired me. And over the next few months, I kind of fell in love with what I thought would be just a short term job to get me some money. And while I look for what I really wanted to do with my life, I kind of fell in love with the profession of of selling and influencing people. And when selling is done right, it's such a beautiful thing that really impacts people on on a fundamental level, both buyers and sellers. And I saw this beauty in the profession. And so I dedicated myself to it. And what I started doing uh, after a short time was just devouring sales materials. I mean, almost from day one, reading sales books. And then I, I just saw like, boy, there's not a lot of evidence anywhere. It's just people's mm-hmm. opinions and they vary from book to book. And they just seem like they're guessing. And so I started applying what I learned from my master's degree, which is researching. And I just started thinking, is there better ways to do presentations? Is what I focused on at first. Right, right, right. And I started reading journals and, and that kind of snowballed into an obsession where I started looking at science. And the more I looked, the more I found how science speaks to every area of the sale, not just how you present, but how buying decisions occur and what creates influence. And and so fast forward many, many, many years in 2009, I launched my firm Huffel Group and it's grown uh, and we're kind of the leader in what we call science-based selling, which is not anecdotal based, not based on what happened 20 years ago or what I did back in the day. It's based on what is the real scientific research say creates a buying decision and how do we align how we sell with it? Well, what were some of the, what were some things that you sold? What were some things that you sold uh, back then? Yeah, I sold a number of things from software to actually training services for a Microsoft product called SharePoint. Back in the day, that was hot. I was VP of sales. Yeah, the company uh, that I I started as a salesperson, and then I worked my way up to VP of sales. And we were one of the fastest growing companies in the United States. And that's when I'm like, 
man, this science really works because we were just <laughs> dominating. And that's what kind of, you know, prompted me to start my own firm, uh, which was definitely a journey. Uh, we started, as I mentioned, in, in 09. And yep. a lot of it early was researching. And I used to turn down clients because I was so focused on getting it right. Because I'm like, boy, this is such a new idea and no one had done it yet. And I'm like, I want to make sure that when I introduce it, I'm really focused. So we didn't even have a website till 2014. We just kept growing organically. Right. And I'd say I would turn down 70% of the inquiries. I would just say I can't handle because I was so focused on researching and refining and testing. And because I wanted a holistic sales system that covered everything based on science, not just, okay, one idea or a little bit here and there. Right. And or just so, trying to duplicate uh, someone else's success. You know, hey, they're exactly. having success. Let's just try to duplicate that. Well, that's the, most of selling. It's mimicry. Right. right yeah. Right. And, and you know, it's funny. Um, one of my, the people that I look up to in my field, advertising and marketing is Lee Clow. He was the uh, yeah. creative director of Shy Day, did all the Apple stuff, Absolute Vodka. Brilliant, brilliant guy. Recently retired. But one of the things he says is, hey, we're all in sales. Get over it. Yes. Like all of us, you know what I mean? Yes. I don't care what, you know, if you think like, oh, sales, that's not for me. Well, if you're in the creative field, who, who do you think is going to present your ideas? Or how do you think you're going to present right. your ideas? You have, they have to be sold to somebody, right? right? You don't just right. make the pretty pictures and go, isn't that pretty? Do you want to buy it? Well, somebody, you have to know how to sell that, yes. right? So, so yes. It's, I, I love that quote when he said that we're all in sales, get over it. <laughs> it's brilliant and spot on because what is selling fundamentally it's influence and what is influence is guiding people and taking what you or I say seriously and being willing to act on it. So we are all constantly influencing others, even people that say, okay, I don't, I don't want to do anything with sales or influence. Mm -hmm. That statement is influential. Or if you say, I, I think selling is wrong. I don't the fact that's an influential statement. You're trying to influence someone that's selling is right. So you can't escape it. In other words, it's ingrained in the human experience. So whether or not you acknowledge it, we're all influencing others and influence is really selling. Selling is just professional influence where you're doing it oftentimes where your career depends on it. But we're all influencing one another every day, every time we open our mouths. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, I found three stats on your website that I want to talk about that I just yeah. think are just mind blowing to me. 63% um, of salespeople behave in ways that hinder them. 63%, right? 88% of buyers believe salespeople do not understand their problems enough to solve them. Yes. Also, another big eye opening one. And then this one, just this one is just nearly half of all salespeople fail to meet their quota each year. Right. So let's uh, let's unpack one of these. Let's I want to unpack the one about nearly half of all salespeople fail to meet their sales quota. Why? Why is that? Why do you think? Yeah, it's a great question. And that's been consistent. And what's really interesting about the research on that, and that isn't research that I've conducted. That's what everyone agrees on. Um, CSO Insights is uh, a big one that does that research every year and others. And it's it's right in that range. It fluctuates year to year, but it's right around 50% consistently over the last 20 years. Right. And what's, what's interesting is to think about, um, if you re rewind uh, selling the profession 10, 12 years ago, everyone thought, well, social selling or social media or, or using some of these new tools, LinkedIn and all these could, could save selling. This is going to change everything. And though those tools are great for sure when they're used well, no question about it. Tools can be really helpful. It hasn't changed how successful salespeople are. It stays consistent over the last 20 years Isn't of right around that 50% fail to make quota, which is the minimum expectation. Here's what we expect for you as a salesperson. And the reason why is we're focusing on fundamentally the wrong person in the sale too often. In other words, when we think, how should I sell? It's most of the time, as you mentioned, based on mimicry. Well, I'm going to copy Bob down the hall because he, he seems to do well. So I'll kind of mimic what he does. Or what's also really common, common is this narcissistic sales approach, which is how would I want to be sold to if I was the customer? I'll just do that. And what we don't focus on enough, in, in, in theory we do, but not in practice, is who we're selling to. And so that's what I think it's the biggest gap I see is that oftentimes we are not focused on what does my buyer need 
And that's why I say we need to focus on this science because it forces you. It forces you to say, okay, how does my buyer's brains make a buying decision? And then I align how I sell with that. And that's the key. Once you do that, all those statistics no longer apply to you because you are hyper-focused on your buyer. And now you're using models that are predictably effective and you're not focused on yourself, which I think is all of our default. It's why do we sell the way we do? Most people say, I don't know. That's just how I was taught or I've seen other people do it. I don't know why it works. It seems to do okay. And so getting outside of that and being hyper-focused on the buyer, I think is a game changer. And it changes that those numbers no longer are half the people failing when it comes to being successful in selling because we're better, we're more able to serve our buyers and that translates into better outcomes. Well, this, this one jumped out at me too. And I, and I, I have it written down here. Focus on how prospects buy, not yes. on the selling. I mean, that sounds simple enough, but how many, how many people really do that? Right. That to me, that's, that's, that's a big one. So talk to unpack that one for me. Yeah, it's huge. I think you're spot on uh, with this one as well, because this is the big problem in selling when you say, well, how should we sell? And, and the premise of science-based selling is very simple. The closer your way of selling is aligned to how your potential clients form buying decisions, the more successful you'll be. And the opposite is also true. The further away your method of selling is from how your potential clients form buying decisions, the less successful you'll be. And then the question is, well, how do people form buying decisions? And again, that's where the science comes in that allows us to, to do this. But without that, where's our, where's our North Star? Where's our reference point? Mm-hmm. We're, we're guessing. It's 100% guessing. That's why if you, I have hundreds of sales books on, my, on the shelves behind me here in my office and then uh, in other shelves as well. <laughs> I have so many of them. And when I pull any two of them off the shelf, they're going to be different. No one writes a sales book that says, hey, my book is exactly like this other one. You're going to love it. They're all different. They're all unique in some way, but they conflict. Which one's right? And it's there. It's always anecdotal. Well, it worked for me. It worked for ABC company. And the same forms of evidence is used. And so we're guessing. We're, we're hoping. And hope isn't a reliable strategy. And that's why I'm so passionate and why I beat this drum of science, because any discipline, any profession, once they start embracing real, verifiable science, things always get better throughout human history at any point everywhere. And selling is a little late to the party, but we're trying to wake people up and say, hey, there's a better way. Yeah, and it's yeah. based on real science. Well, I also love this next one, this next topic, because there, there's, there's just uh, so much here. Persuasion versus manipulation. Mm. Um, and I've learned after doing some of the research on your, on your site, I work in a persuasion business. Uh, yes. persuasion occupation, um, which I was like, oh, yeah. I, I get, and, and, and it's also the basis for our democracy. So talk about first persuasion versus manipulation. What, what is the difference? What is each one? And, you know, how do you know if a message is manipulation when you're, when you're yeah. you know, and, and how, can pe- how, can, how can someone today listening to this try to, try to bring that into their, to their daily sales approach. So talk to me about that persuasion versus manipulation. It's an important topic. It's one I cover in my new book, Sell More with Science. Uh, we have a chapter uh, towards the end, the eighth chapter that deals with this because it is an important thing because many salespeople have this fear and rightly so of they don't want to be the stereotypical 1970s used car salesman, that picture in their mind they have, like, I don't ever want to be that. And how do, how do I distinguish when I, I don't ever want to manipulate someone? How do I make sure that I don't? So first, we need to understand the difference between persuasion and, and manipulation. And there is a big difference. So a couple of things we can look at real practically. Number one is intention. When you are influencing someone, uh, effective influence and persuasion is mutually beneficial. In other words, if I'm trying to sell you something, if you say yes, you win and I win, not just me. Okay. And so manipulation is always when uh, a potential client, if they say yes, is worse off than they would be if not. And all the cons you and I can think of and list throughout history, that's always consistent of them. When someone goes in with a con, bad things happen eventually, and it's very predictable. 
So we want to look at our intention. Do am I really trying to serve other people? And that's why that focus on the buyer is so important. Yep. And that yep. means sometimes maybe disqualifying yourself that your product or service might not be right. Absolutely. For We're going to talk about that in a second. Go ahead. Yeah. So that that's sometimes to be ethical seller. If that never comes up in your conversation, then you, you might want to look at that. So thinking about um, intention, number one, second one, that's really obvious, but it's so easy sometimes for salespeople to ignore when they're under a lot of stress or when they're struggling with performance is distorting or withholding truth. And this is a big one. So mm. are, am I being truly honest and not just am I saying things that are accurate, but am I withholding information that I know my buyer should know mm. that would help inform their decision that might not be in my best interest? Wow. Am I distorting the truth at all? If so, that is manipulation, right? Because there's, yeah. a, again, that gets back to that intention. And then the third is coercion. Am I, am I forcing someone? Do I have to apply extreme amounts of pressure? Do I have to do it or else? Am I resorting to that? Those three things I have found in doing quite a bit of research on this uh, are the three kind of ways to, to notice, okay, am I engaging in this or not. And one other thing I'll share about this, and we can talk about um, how to make sure you're always just focusing on, on influence and persuasion as well. But what I've done research on too, that I talk about in the book is when are you most likely to engage in manipulation? Because there is some fascinating studies in this area that tell us when two things are happening, you and I are more likely to be tempted to go down this route. Because reality is there's temptation in every profession. And in selling this as airs, number one, when you're struggling with your sales performance, uh, oftentimes this occurs when people are new to a job or new to the profession. Oftentimes the greatest temptation to, in, to kind of distort or withhold truth is right then. So you want to be aware of this. And if you're a sales leader, you want to be aware of this because often people's careers get derailed when they just begin because they give into this temptation and it destroys, it will destroy your career faster than anything right. else. The second is when you're under stress. Uh, it could be personal, professional. Stress does a lot of things to our bodies. Um, we talk about this. We have some interesting white papers on motivation on our website, but stress makes, it, it changes how we think. It changes how we process information. So when you or I are under extreme amounts of stress, that also is when we're more likely to give into this kind of temptation, our resolve lowers. And so you want to be really mindful when you're struggling, be extra diligent on not compromising. When you're under stress, sometimes that means, you know, calling up someone you, you care for or a sales leader or a colleague and say, hey, you know, I'm under a lot of stress. I want you to hold me accountable this week. I want you to ask me at the end of the week, did I do anything I'm not proud of? And sometimes knowing that that conversation's coming will help you protect yourself because the reality is, Wishing or hoping that you're ethical isn't often good enough. You have to take proactive steps to make sure that you you continue to focus on being an ethical salesperson because that's really the most the only way to have lasting success is when you operate with full integrity. I'll tell you a story. Twenty years ago, um, I was at the morning call, and I was about five years into my design career there, and uh, this was T squares and markers. So this is before computers. And I was being told, the department was being told, the computers are coming, the computers are coming. In the meantime, I thought, I need a new challenge. So I took a sales position within the morning call where I sold a, a, a specialized product that was called, a, it was a single sheet insert. It was in, an insert, not a, like a grocery insert. These were more for like local businesses where mm. someone could, I would go in, I would talk to them, we'd pick zip codes. I remember I was one of the first people at the morning call that was issued a laptop. The thing was as thick as like a brick, right? Um, probably weighed about 40 pounds, but no one really taught me like how to sell. So this is what I did. And I want to get your opinion on it. Yeah. So I would go in and remember I'm a specialized rep. So I wasn't selling the, the, the newspaper itself. I was selling a, an insert, right? You could buy this either eight and a half by 11 or five and a half by eight and a half. So what I would, what I would do is I'd go in, I'd introduce myself. We'd get the little pleasantries out of the way. And I'd say, okay, tell me about what you guys are trying to do. To give me, educate me. Just what do you, what, what's the business? How did you start this? You know, just conversation. And sometimes what would happen is I would realize 
they're not ready for this program yet. They're not ready. They don't mm-hmm. know where enough of their customers are coming from. Mm-hmm. They, they, don't, they don't know. So it would be like a spray and pray. They're, they, at that point, would be more better served running an, an ad in the newspaper itself. And again, this is before cell phones and all kinds of things. So one of my recommendations was put a little tablet at your front counter. And when people purchase, just ask them where their zip code is. So it'll take about six months. You'll get to know. But here's the interesting thing that happened. Every time I did that, and I would say I'd invest like two hours, and I would say, you know what? I got to tell you guys, I don't think I can help you. Um, Not because I don't want to, but because my product that I'm selling is not right for your business right now. Mm -hmm. You could feel the room change. Talk about instant credibility. Yeah. Because I could just feel it. They're like, oh, and this this is how the conversation would go. Oh, but you just spent two hours. What, but that's what you're, this is your, I'm like, no, 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 no. My job is to help your business grow. Not, mm-hmm. not, not me. See, I didn't know to not say that. That's just what felt authentic to me. Right. Yes, so they yes. would say, well, well, what do you suggest we do? I mean, I could have told them anything at that point and they would have done it because they, they, right. they trusted me and they right. were right to trust me because I, I wanted that. So I said, here's what I would do in about six months. I'll come back. And we're going to know where your people are coming from and we can attack those zip codes and this will be a good program for you. I said, so with that, I'm glad I got to meet you. Here's my card. Have a good day. Mm. People wrote letters to my boss about those interactions. I still have them. And mm. I just thought to myself, you know, the, and, and six months, to, you could, I could set it watch on my watch. In six months, they'd call me back. I'd make the sale. But I had to wait yeah. six months, right? Yeah. Now that might not square with someone who's looking to like, you know, have have me meet a quota. But I figured I I haven't I want to have integrity with this. Yes. Okay. I'm not going in. I could have made those that plenty of sales with those with people like that that were not ready for the, the program that I had to offer, but I couldn't do it. I, I couldn't do it. I, I had to be honest with them and just share with them. But so so what, was I doing the right thing there? I mean, what what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, my thoughts would be that, yes, because you mentioned a key word there, um, authenticity, uh, that you wanted to be authentic. And that's really gets to what is what is selling? Is it just simply getting someone to say yes and sign on the line that is dotted? Or is it really trying to serve someone? And right, depending on which of those two camps you fall will predictably tell you what will life be like in five years and 10 years and 20, right? For you as a professional. If you want to be successful in today's transparent marketplace, like this isn't your grandfather's selling environment, <laughs> uh, right? When you do something that doesn't serve people, you know, they can share it with others quite easily. So you can kill your reputation and drive yourself right out of the profession of selling very quickly by trying to just cram things that people don't need and get some people to say yes, because you're persuasive, but you're manipulating them through the process. And then there's always short term that might, you might hit quota your first quarter long term. It will, it will run you out of that, uh, that company and out of the profession in general, because, you know, the profession as a whole is trying to move away from that old sales approach where just mm-hmm. sell it at any cost, you know, right. it doesn't matter if they need it. And so people that are still dinosaurs that have that mentality are, are not really treated that well in the profession anymore because we're, we're trying to move forward. If, if, you're, if you want to move forward, great, welcome. If not, good luck, right? Because you're going to get run over uh, by the profession as a whole. So I think you mentioned something, though, that I want to hit on, and that is how do you protect yourself against falling to manipulative behaviors? One is authenticity, which you mentioned. Okay. And what does that mean as well? That means being you. I'll give you an example. Uh, I coached a salesperson. This is a long time ago who um, I knew and he had just started a new uh, a new job in the insurance industry. And so I went and met with him, uh, give him some coaching. And he said, David, I just I just started doing a new sales strategy. What do you think of this? And he showed me, he said he started using a southern accent. And I'm like, what? Why are you why do you have a southern accent? He goes, well, the, the guy down the hall who was the top performer in the company had a had a southern accent and he was a good old country boy and he he talked in a real slow pace and so uh so did this guy now he was of course faking it that wasn't really him and i said i would not do that (laughs) i said because that's going to come across as inauthentic uh and that's not why that gentleman is successful it's not the magic of a southern accent it's that he's doing a lot of other things right i mean just think about this 
Imagine if he met one of his clients at the grocery store with his family. Let's just say, (laughs) I mean, do you use the Southern accent? Do you not? I mean, what would his kids say and his wife if all of a sudden he started talking in the Southern? See, it puts you in these ridiculous situations. So being authentic is is not only looking out for your your clients, putting their needs before your own, uh, which builds that credibility and it's how you really foster success long term. But it's also... Um, focusing on really being you, right? Just be yeah. be honest, be authentic. Because when you're trying to deceive someone, right? That's that's the first step to. I mean, you're already down that road of manipulation. When I'm trying to present myself as something I'm really not, that's yeah. problematic. And so you want to avoid that. One other thing I'll share real quickly, and this people don't like, but there's so much research on this. Your professional and your personal life are linked. And this is something when I was researching for my book, Sell More with Science, this is something that floored me. And I'm like, boy, if I would have known this, this could have (laughs) saved me a lot of hassle as a sales leader uh, (laughs) making hiring decisions. Uh, The reality is that when people are unethical in their personal life, it's very hard for them to say, but I draw the line at work. The reality Mm -hmm. is we're all people. We, you know, we don't act one way and then act another way. You might be able to fake out other people around you, but what the research shows is really interesting. It's only a matter of time. So one way to clean up your professional life is to also look at your personal. If you are unethical in your personal life, you want to deal with that, even if you don't think it's a big deal, because it will, when the opportunities come and the temptations arise, you are far more likely to fall. And they've done studies on like CEOs, for example, that have fallen and done things that are unethical and gotten caught. And they say, was there any ways to know this before it happened? Because they're good at covering it up. And they found, researchers found, yes. When you look at their personal life, when you look at the things, you look at the, uh, how often they get in trouble with the law, even looking at things like speeding ticket. I mean, there's little things they can predict and they can go, okay, if we're having problems in the personal life ethically, then that's a precursor. So they say, be careful. There's been some really interesting studies, even published in the Harvard Business Review about when you hire senior leaders, you know, you want to do some background checks and take that really seriously. And I'm like, that's a big deal. So it gives us also a way to protect ourselves is to analyze not just what you say we're on your own sales calls or talking to potential clients, but analyze your personal life and say, okay, is there anything here that I wouldn't want people to know about? And if so, clean that up because that's not who you want to be anyway. And it's very likely that that same mindset could filter over. And if temptation comes, you're far more likely to give into it. So be really diligent in that area too, which I thought was something surprising from the science. At least it surprised me. Yeah. I mean, that to me just sounds like, you know, introspection, you know, take stock, you know, look at what you're doing, look at how you're treating people, look at how, and, and I'm a huge, huge believer in, that the little things make the biggest impact. Mm-hmm. Like it, they just, they add up, you know, it, 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 if you're not doing the little things, the big things are, aren't going to take care of themselves. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you this though. What about slumps? How do you, how do you get out of a slump? You know, someone's just, you know, it's like, I'm, I'm doing everything right. I'm, I, I got the integrity going. I, I know my product. I believe in it. I have passion for it. I'm slumping. What do you, yeah. what does the science say about that? Science says there's a lot of things we can do and you can get out of a slump and also keep yourself from falling into one uh, pretty predictably as well. So if you're in a slump, let's talk about that. Yep. What I would call, what I would recommend you do strongly is look, are you obtaining, we call them uh, commitments to what are known as the six whys. And these are the six small decisions that create a larger buying decision. And so oftentimes when slumps occur, in fact, almost always, yeah. it's because we're not obtaining a certain commitment. And so if if that's something, um, and the six whys real quickly are why now, um, uh, why change, excuse me, then why now, why your industry solution, why you or your company, why your product or service, and then why spend the money. And if you're focused on all of them, which we walk you how to do in both of my books, um, it gives you a kind of a, a framework, if you will. And now when you're in a slump, you go, okay, which of those am I not focused on And that's where you dive in. A second thing I would recommend you do real practically is when you are selling well, record your presentation, break it up into small pieces, each step of your sale and record it. You don't have to be in front of a client, just pitch the mirror, pitch your significant other, talk to yourself, but record it. Then when you go into a slump, 
You can listen to how you were selling when you were effective. And oftentimes that will alert you as well as like, oh, I didn't realize I haven't done that. Oh, I used to say that. Now I'm doing this. Okay, that makes a lot of sense uh, as well. Third thing I'll share about slumps, how not to get into them is something that I think is mission critical is those six whys I just mentioned. When you are conducting sales calls, whether you win or lose the sale, you want to conduct a win-loss analysis. And that is at the end of the sale, you say, okay, where did I get commitments of those six whys? And which ones did I not obtain commitments to? Because usually with most salespeople, the majority of your lost sales are because you're not obtaining commitments to one or two of those whys. That tells you what to focus on. Mm. And so that way you're able to alert yourself before you ever go into a full blown slump, you're like, boy, okay, I'm really struggling more than I used to on getting that why change. And so what can I do now to get stronger at that? And it tells you where to focus on. And that's the key with slums. Oftentimes people don't know, okay, where do I start? Like what's causing it? Think about it from the buyer's perspective. Uh, your biggest problem in selling is lack of commitment from your buyers to one of those things. And if you get commitments to all the six whys, the sales, almost always occurs. And if you don't get commitments to even one of them, it never occurs ever 100% of the time. They're not going to say yes, but not be convinced they should do it now or not be convinced of your company or your product, or they should change it all. They're not going to do it. So if you're hyper-focused on their buying process and you're using that to align how you sell and focus on that, it gives you tremendous insights on how to not fall in the slumps with those win-loss analysis. And second, if you do, where do I focus? Because time is not your friend when it comes to a sales slump. If you're slumping, you want to identify why and correct it immediately because over time, it starts to mess with your mind. You get negative. And now you can also, you can have a, um, um, an issue with how you're thinking, not just how you're selling. And that can, that can make it much more challenging to pull someone out of a slump. So I would say be proactive with those win-loss analysis. But if you do find yourself in a slump, Focus on the six whys, cut out all the other noise, start right there. I guarantee you, once you understand those, it'll tell you where to focus on. You dive deep into that and you're going to find the reason why you're in that slump. Walk me through a typical buying process. How, how, do, what do you see, how do you see that? How do you see the typical buying process going? Walk me through that. Yeah. So there's a lot of ways, depending on the sales environment you're in. I mean, there's there's some sales that are happen very quickly, uh, some that take weeks, some that take months, some that take years. Uh, but the, regardless of how long they are, our brain's decision-making process doesn't change. In other words, it's those six whys. So when, we're, when you or I, as a consumer or a business person, are constructing a buying decision on our own, what are we thinking through? Why should I make a change at all? If I'm committed to that, why do I need to do this now? Why can't I procrastinate? If I'm committed to that, you know, why do I need the salesperson I'm talking to? Why do I need their industry in general? Them or their competitors? Why can't I create something on my own? Maybe it's not as good, but maybe I can do it cheaper or faster. And then once I say, okay, I can't do that, then what is the right company to partner with? Okay, then what is the right product or service? And then finally, why should I spend the money on this? There's a lot of things I could spend money on. Maybe this is a problem I need to solve, but it's not as important as some other issue I have going on in my business. Why should I do that? So that is the buying decision. That can sometimes, depending on how many people are involved, that could take years to guide someone through all that, or it could take uh, 30 minutes, depending on the sales environment you're in. But anything you or I buy, whether it's a candy bar, candy bar at a grocery store mm-hmm. or some multi-million dollar piece of equipment, we're going through that. Now, usually it's unconsciously. We don't sit often and agonize over each of those commitments. Right. So sometimes we would on a larger decision we might. But the key for me as a seller is when I understand what's going on between my buyer's ears, that's what I'm focused on. So in other words, I'm not trying to sell them anything. I'm trying to guide them through that buying process that there is innate within them. It's how their brain works. And so I'm helping them through that buying journey. I'm not trying to cram anything down their throat. I'm guiding them through the process I know they need to get through. And that is a tremendous value add that you can do when you're selling. Because that's the biggest problem in sales today. The survey data shows 
is people are overwhelmed with information <laughs> and they don't know what, how do I make a decision I'm going to feel good about? There's so much information in the marketplace on everything and so many competing options. And so when we as sellers can focus on guiding them through their buying process, it is, I'm finding today, the biggest competitive advantage you can have is not what you sell, but how you sell. And there's ways to check in as you're in that process with them, right? To kind of to kind of see where you're at. You can almost yes. kind of take the temperature as you're moving through that process, which is kind of to me, that's a that's a game changer, right? That's brilliant. Like you're you don't have to wait to the end and be like, okay, what do no. you think? You want to buy? You can check right. in on them. How how talk to me about how you how you do that? Give me one example. Yeah. And that's a great point. So you can, regardless of the kind of sales cycle you're in, you want to be heavily focused on those commitments and you want to guide them in thinking through them, right? So I'm presenting, why do we have a sales process? It's to obtain those six commitments. So let's say I'm talking about why change, which is often the first one. I, I present them in numerical order, but our, our brains are, it's sloppy as we form a buying decision. They can come in different orders depending on the context. But why change is often first. So if I'm engaging someone, until I create, for example, the curiosity to consider change, I'm going to be thought of as irrelevant because why would someone want to meet with the salesperson to talk about a solution that they don't even know they need to change in, in that regards? So that why change is kind of often the very first one. So I'm going, to, I'm going to be heavily focused on that. And I want to, let's say I'm selling to numerous people. I want to engage each of them in this so that we're either committed to change or at least open to it. So now I can talk about what that change would look like. And so I'm going to ask them, not just present and hope that they're engaged, but I'm going to start saying, does it make sense why, based on what we've talked about, Dill, why making this kind of change would be beneficial for your business? And they might say, well, yeah, it, it really does. Or they might say, you know what? I'm not, I'm not sure yet. And then I, but now I know what's going on. Whereas yeah. what a lot of people do is they think of commitments at the end of the sale, it's at the yes. close. That's when right. I ask them to buy. And then that's a surprising roller coaster. We're not sure what happens, uh, what's going to happen. But what we want to do is we want to engage them in these uh, big commitments throughout the entire sale. So I always know where you're at. So if you're struggling with this. one of these I commitments. Love this. It's a check-in. This is a check-in as yeah. you're going through and and you adjust as you need or, or you exactly. kind of go, there, there, there's a signal there. They gave me what I, okay, I can move on to the next, right? I mean, yes. I love it. It's fantastic. Yes. Fantastic. Um, what about social proof? I know that's a, that's a, that's a big one. You talk about that a lot on your site and stuff. Talk, let's talk a little bit about social proof. Yeah. Social proof is a big, big idea. Uh, it's exciting. So what is social proof? It connects the persuasiveness of an idea with how other people are responding to it. It's why we are all drawn to best-selling books or blockbuster movies or businesses with lots of satisfied customers, or even on Amazon. I know I'm always looking at the Amazon reviews. Mm -hmm. And if it's four star and everyone says good things, I'm like, okay, low risk. If it has one star and there's a lot of bad comments, I'm like, probably not, right? And so we're all, that's social proof. We're all persuaded by that. And what's really interesting about social proof, it is one of those scientific principles that has been around for a long time. There is research on social proof from 1908 on wow. how, in fact, some of the most wow. famous studies on social proof were conducted in the 1950s and 60s, and we're still studying it today. Why I mention that is because unlike a lot of sales methodologies that are here today and they're tied to market conditions, and then five years from now, the authors say, yeah, don't do that no more. That don't work. Here's what you should do, right? Social proof has been around forever. In fact, just recently, Wharton Business School said the number one way, they say, that businesses can establish trust with their potential customers is social proof. So this is a powerful scientific principle that we can use. And you can leverage social proof in so many areas. I mean, it can be sharing about your, your clients' stories and how they've had a, a positive outcomes from your, your product or service. Social proof can also be used. One of my favorite ways to leverage it is when you're going to ask uh, a challenging deep dive follow-up question, you know, to frame it with, you know, Bill, a lot of people that I talk to uh, have, that is a concern we just discussed, but I'd love to get your opinion on how do you think that has impacted your business, right? I can just, I can, I can frame things with social proof and then I'm much more likely to get compliance. So social proof, like all these scientific principles is true today. It was true in 1908. It'll be true a hundred years from now because it's based on how our brains 
work. And so in other words, when you learn this stuff, it's not like five years from now, you're going to be like, well, that doesn't work anymore. Let's try something else. I mean, your great, great grandchildren will be using social proof. It's how we work. It worked 100 years ago. It'll work hundreds of years from now. And that's what's empowering is when you learn this, you, you have it for the rest of your life because you can use right. social proof in any area of life, not just selling. I have to ask this as someone who spends a tremendous amount of time using creativity. Yeah. Does creativity come into sales at all? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I think that's, that's critical. We need to be professionally nimble. Um, the ancients called it practical wisdom. The Greeks called it, which is where we're able to, in selling, adapt to every unique buyer. So even if you have a very detailed sales process or even sales scripting, Oftentimes, you'll need to go off of that and customize that for the person you're talking to. So I'm a huge fan of customization of sales process. Normally, when I salespeople say, can I customize it? And I say, what do you mean? They say, can I make it my own? That I'm not a fan of. I'm not even sure what that means. But neither are usually they. But what I'm a fan of is make it your buyers. Customize it for them. Now, I love that. Mm -hmm. So absolutely, creativity is key. What I found in sales, what really helps be productively creative, because creativity in sales can be good or it can be really, really, really bad, where you're like, oh, please don't do that again. That was mm -hmm. terrible. Um, is what are you basing it on? And that's why, again, to beat that drum, when you understand the framework of how people make a buying decision, now it empowers you to be nimble, to go, okay, I know what I'm trying to accomplish. I'm in a unique situation or in a challenging situation. Now I can go over here. I can pivot. I can frame it this way. I can leverage this or that. And so it gives you now the freedom to be productively creative in a way that serves your client rather than just making up ideas that may or may not work. So it, it, it brings predictability as far as effectiveness in the creativity and in sales. Um, that's what matters. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I want to talk a little bit as we, I can't believe this hour is going by so fast already. Um, let's talk about the book. So you have yes. uh, Science of Selling. You wrote it. Um, fantastic book. And you have a new one coming out. I can see it behind you there. Uh, Sell More with Science. So talk to me about um, how you came to write the book and just what, what, um, what happened after you, after you wrote it. And you know, obviously now it's the, the Science of Selling is coming out on paperback. And you have the new one. When does the new one come out? Uh, March 22nd. There you go. All right. So talk to me about the book and writing a book. Yeah. So writing the book was something I wanted to do is to put this down and get it out to, uh, to more people. It came out, The Science of Selling, in 2016. And uh, it has gone all around the world. It's been translated into many languages. And every, literally every day I get notes from people that say it, it's positively impact them, which is really really exciting uh, to hear. But writing the book was, I wanted to share some of the research and what was making such a big impact for the clients I had. And so I, I put this in a book form and writing the book was, took 10 years, uh, the science wow. of selling. Wow. And it took a long time because of the research. The way I write books is different than the way uh, many of my uh, uh, colleagues in sales profession uh, write books. Um, so because it's so much research, in other words, if you find an idea in the science of selling that you say, I want to go deeper in that, I want to understand that a little more. Okay. Uh, we have hundreds, I mean, there's over 400 different citations in the book to journals, to academic journals, scientific journals. So if you say, I want to dig deeper into that and see the research for myself to see where <laughs> David came up with these ideas, um, you can do that. And so wow. there's total transparency. And so because of the amount of research and the amount of testing, like those six whys I mentioned, that took me over six years to create, looking at the research out there. And then that was unique in creating, okay, how would I put that in a sales context? Testing it, making sure it was aligned with all the research, hundreds and hundreds of studies that have looked into this. And so it's, it's very time consuming, but it takes a long time to write um, a book, at least the way, the way I do it. But the nice thing about a book is it lasts, you know, the, we're still, I got comments today on, um, on the book, a number of comments people sent me today and it came out in 2016. And, and so it's, it's something I, I take it really seriously for me. I really care about selling. I care deeply about people. And I think if you stand up and tell people how you should sell, 
And that impacts them on a personal or professional level and impacts their families and impacts those they sell to. You need to have reasons for it. I am not a fan of people just sharing what worked for them when they have no idea why it worked. I, I say, please don't. Um, it needs to be based on something real when it comes to selling. And so I take that really seriously. So I want to make sure that anything I share is backed by science. I know it will work 100%. And that's so I, the I take- that's what I think is just so brilliant about what you did is, you know, you, you tied it to science. Yep. I mean, you tied it to science. What does the science say? I hear you say that a lot. You know, let's look right. at the science. What does the science say? Not, not so much what does David Hoffeld say, but what does the science say, right? Um, I just think that's awesome. And I wonder, you know, too, if, if, you know, if you're in sales and you're not using these principles, what are you, how are you selling? You know, could be all, could be just kind of that, you know, I don't know. It just, I just think that from a sales perspective, which is why I wanted to talk to you on the podcast is I just think what you're doing and what you're talking about is it's important. It's, it's, it's important for a lot of people to, to know about it. And I, and I love that you're doing it. Tell me the story. I think you told me one time about um, when you were writing the book, how you, you, you had your day job and then you, you came home and you had, you had, you know, kids crying in the background and you were like, Oh my God, like, I can't, I'm so tired. And I'm, I'm sitting here writing this book. I mean, that's the discipline, right? That's you want to, you want a best-selling book. That's what you got to do. So just tell me a little bit about how you, how you did that. Yeah. Yeah. So when I got my uh, book deal for the science of selling, we were really blessed that Penguin Random House publish it and then the new book as well. And so of course I'm motivated. Okay, let's write this. And I had a really crude draft of it already written, but it was, it wasn't refined as far as the way it was presented. And it was a lot of my research notes essentially. And so I was swamped. I mean, I was working with clients at this point. I was busy, um, you know, training. And so I'm like, okay, I'm going to try to find time to write this book. And I wasn't able to. Uh, in fact, I, I would say, okay, I'm going to try to write today for at least two hours. And then today would happen. Stuff would come up and I wouldn't do it. And I, I was starting to really get concerned because I was falling behind schedule. And so I kind of, um, what I do for my clients, I kind of did for myself. And I said, okay, I don't know what to do here. What does science say I should do? So I started reading, how do you follow through on the things that you want to do? And I struggled, I, I, I stumbled on something uh, that I refer to as action triggers, which connect a behavior with an environmental stimulus. What that means essentially is um, what I did, my action trigger was I said, okay, I'm going to write my book after I put my kids to bed. And so every night after I put my, at that point, uh, I just had two. Now I have three children, but at that point I only had two. And after I put them to sleep, I would go down in my home office and I would write for between two to five, six hours um, a night, every single night uh, for uh, quite a while, um, a couple of years, and really refining this this book. And so that saved me. So I, I actually went to science and go, "What do I do?" And it said, "Don't try to muster up the willpower." to do what you want to do. Instead, link it to, an, in other words, if, for example, if, if I wanted to work out more, I might say, instead of saying, I'm going to try to work out today, which is unlikely, you create an action trigger, which has been so, shown in so many studies to increase the likelihood you'll do what you want to do. After lunch, I'll work out for an hour or, or on the way home from the office, I'll stop at the gym and work out for 45 minutes. Connecting it to your environment so you don't, it's a preloaded decision. And that saved me. And that's why Almost all of the science of selling was written between the hours of 9 p.m. and 3 a.m. Because for me, when you're writing, some nights it clicks and sometimes it doesn't. Sure. But when it clicks, I, I talk about it like riding a wave. Yeah. Like, hey, when, the, when it's flowing, when you're putting the ideas down and it's really going, I ride that wave until I can't I, I get until it throws me off. Because sometimes yeah. with writing, at least for me, it's like, man, this is rough. Uh, and you push through and other times it just flows. You get into that flow state and you're like, oh, OK, I'm going to I'm going to ride this way for as long as I can. And so that would be like a late night, three, four in the morning. But I'm like, hey, you do what you got to do. Right. Life right. Is did hard. you ever did? I'm curious. Did you ever as a chapter you were writing and, and thought, you know what, I'm going to I'm going to try this tomorrow on, on one of my sales. Like you could almost like kind of test it like re- in real time. Right. Oh, yeah. And test it and go, wow, that did work. Yeah, well, everything I write, I tested a lot beforehand uh, just okay. to see how it would apply in the real world of sales. That's why it took 10 years to, to write the book, uh, to have it done. But yeah, I live this stuff. I, yeah. This isn't well, I, for me I a hustle. Very, yeah, very I live. passionate about it. Yeah, yeah. I, 
I live it. In fact, I've had clients say one of the things we liked about you was we read your book and then you tried to sell us your services and like, yeah, you're doing it. I'm mm-hmm. like, yeah, yeah. And that's integrity too, right? If you Absolutely. say one thing and do another, well, that's the definition of not having integrity. So yeah, I'm like, hey, I believe in this stuff. I live it. I know it works. And I've seen it transform people's lives. And the first person whose life it transformed, quite honestly, was mine. I mean, back in the day, I started using this and it it changed my life. I mean, I grew up dirty poor. I mean, I was homeless when I was 13 years old. I mean, I, it's, a, it's a whole interesting story. But um, I got in the profession of sales. No one in my family had ever made any kind of money. We were always poor. Interesting. And then all of a sudden, I got in and I started just making money, you know, into the mm-hmm. six figures uh, pretty quickly, which I'm like, what is this? I mean, this is this is unbelievable. And uh, so, yeah, the first person, the reason I believe in this is I've seen it over the years transform so many companies and people. But the first person whose life had changed was mine. And that's, that's awesome. why I know this works. There's yeah. research, of course, but it, mm-hmm. it changed my life. Yeah. Well, congratulations on the on the first book and congratulations on the second one. I, it's huge accomplishment. Really cool. Now, if people wanted to get in touch with you or podcast, listen to your podcast, your website, where they can find a book, give me that information. Hit me with it. Yeah. Huffeld Group, H-O-F-F-E-L-D group.com is where you can go. There's a lot of great resources on the site at no cost. Uh, You can check out uh, the science of selling. It comes out in paperback uh, in February 8th. And then Sell More with Science is launched on March 22nd. Uh, you can check out those books anywhere. Fine books are sold. Uh, you're going to find them. You also have a really great podcast. That all just through the website? Yeah, The Science of Selling. You can check it out on our website, or you can go anywhere that you consume podcasts. Uh, Apple, Spotify, uh, you name it, it's everywhere. So check that out, The Science of Selling. We put out weekly content. Uh, every Tuesday morning, uh, a new episode is released. So definitely check that out. Listen, man, I thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. I think this was a great conversation. I think this is going to help a lot of people um, just think about selling differently. And, and you know, I, I would hope that they would reach out and at least, you know, engage with you and your book. And because I, I just think you're awesome. And I appreciate I, I, it, my friend. Thanks for being it. on AdYak, man. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Be well. All right. All right, AdYakers. Hope you enjoyed it because we have many more great conversations planned and guests lined up ready to yak it up. AdYak is sponsored and produced by ASR Media and Lehigh Valley with Love. Theme song was written and performed by Dan Ross. Location recording at JT Norman's house. AdYak is the official podcast of the AAF Greater Lehigh Valley Ad Club. Stay hungry, stay humble. Till next time. This episode of AdYak is rated O for, oh man, that was good.